0: reminded and assured of the promise of the gospel as jesus himself often declared that he is the temple of god so also we may know as we worship our god through him through jesus who is the temple there our sins truly are forgiven so we may worship him now with a free and good conscience knowing that he is pleased and even delights in our imperfect worship as it is sanctified by his spirit Let us then open the word of God that he might speak to us. Our scripture reading comes from 2 Kings 16. My apologies for the uh, bulletin. I wrote 1 Kings, but uh, most of you probably figured it out already. Uh, We are in 2 Kings. 2 Kings uh, chapter 16. In the seventeenth year of Pekah, son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was twenty years old when he began to reign, and he reigned sixteen years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places, and on the hills, and under every green tree. Then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to wage war on Jerusalem. And they besieged Ahaz, but could not conquer him. At that time Rezin, the king of Syria, recovered Elath for Syria, and drove the men of Judah from Elath. And the Edomites came to Elath, where they dwell to this day. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria listened to him. The king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it, carrying its people captive to cure, and he killed Rezin. When Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglathpileser, king of Assyria, he saw the altar that was at Damascus. And king Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest a model of the altar and its pattern exact in all its details. And Uriah the priest built the altar in accordance with all that king Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it before king Ahaz arrived from Damascus. And when the king came from Damascus, the king viewed the altar... Then the king drew up near to the altar and went up on it and burned his burnt offering and his grain offering and poured his drink offering and threw the blood of his peace offerings on the altar. And the bronze altar that was before the Lord he removed from the front, from the front of the house, from the place between his altar and the house of the Lord, and put it on the north side of, the alt- of his altar. And King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, saying on the great altar burn the morning burnt offering and the evening grain offering and the king's burnt offering and his grain offering with, all the, with the burnt offering of all the people of the land and their grain offering and their drink offering and throw on it all the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice. But the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. Uriah the priest did all this as King Ahaz commanded. And King Ahaz cut off the frames of the stand. Of the stands and removed the basin from them, and he took down the sea from off the bronze oxen that were under it, and put it on a stone pedestal. And the covered way for the Sabbath that had been built inside the house, and the outer entrance for the king, he caused to go around the house of the Lord because of the king of Assyria. Now, the rest of the acts of Ahaz that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Ahaz slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, and Hezekiah his son reigned in his place. So far the reading of God's word. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 15, stanzas 1 through 3. The text to which we'll be giving our attention this morning is the second half of First, or second, second Kings chapter 16. That's the verses 10 through 20. And you may be helped by having those, uh, th- that chapter open. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, as you can see, we're taking now a second week to look and reflect on the life of and legacy of this king ahaz uh, this is a bit unusual i recognize for our series in kings uh, where we've been trying to go chapter by chapter taking them as as self-contained units which they certainly are uh, but with ahaz i thought it may be good to separate uh, the two dimensions of his life, the political and the religious, uh, and recognize also the lessons that are taught here in the second half of this chapter focusing on uh, Ahaz's religion, Ahaz's worship. Ahaz's worship. Uh, So last week, we, if you remember, we focused on the question of trust and refuge. Uh, Where do you find your trust? And we saw the folly and the short-sightedness of trusting in man. Uh, If you remember the message from Isaiah... Uh, to King Ahaz, was rebuking Ahaz for f- forsaking the gently flowing waters of Shiloah, the presence of the Lord that's not impressive in the eyes of the world, but is constant, is pure, and is sustained. And he forsook them to chase after the mighty, impressive waters of uh, Assyria, the world empire. And, and by so doing, Ahaz thought in his mind that he was bringing Judah into significance in the world stage but in reality he was leaving judah under the subjugation of assyria for which judah would soon pay a very heavy price Uh, so he took refuge in the might of man and he abandoned the true refuge of judah which was in the presence of the lord Uh, Now, in the second half of the chapter, the the attention shifts from his political actions to his religious actions. You can see they're interrelated. They are certainly connected. Uh, But here it focuses on worship, which is the other dark side of Ahaz's legacy. And it's very much worth our attention. Uh, The principle I want to set forth here, tying it back to last week, is that those who trust in the world will worship like the world. Those who trust in the world will worship like the world. And that is as great, if not even a greater tragedy, in Ahaz's life than the political legacy that he left behind. Now, the political sphere is so often what captivates our attention, uh, but we should notice that our chapter actually spends more time, more space, talking about Ahaz as a worshiper than about Ahaz as a politician. Uh, Certainly these two spheres, as I mentioned, are interrelated. Uh, For example, verse 19 tells us these changes were made because of the king of Assyria. Uh, But it is the question of worship that captures the focus of this chapter. Now, first of all, the chapter begins already in the first verses with Ahaz's worship of foreign gods. Uh, He he even committed the the ultimate sin, the gravest sin of burning his own son as an offering to those gods. So taking a, a covenant child of God, a child who belongs to God, not to mention the the, the son of David, the next in line to the throne of David, and sacrificing him in the fire to a pagan god. Uh, Our text adds a little note to that, if you noticed that. Uh, It adds a note saying, He did this according to the despicable practices of the nations that God had driven out before the people of Israel. There's a little hint there of what may soon be coming for Judah. This is the point at which God said, the Canaanite sin has reached the the brim, and now I will drive them out. Well, now Judah is committing the very same sins. Uh, child sacrifice, as we saw last week, also uh, is, is often described or, or portrayed in the Bible as the ultimate uh, degree of evil, the breaking point at which God says, I will no longer tolerate this nation's presence on the earth. Uh, we want to recognize here the, the very sick heart, then, of king Ahaz. Uh, he is a betrayal of everything that the Davidic line stood for, uh, having forsaken the god of his father David, he is now offering David's children uh, to uh, as sacrifice to the gods of David's enemies. He's the very anti the, the anti-David, you might even call him the anti-Christ, the anti-Messiah in that day. Uh, he had made the decision to devote his lives to those gods and he was absolutely committed to worshipping them. Now we can only speculate on why. Why? Why did Ahaz forsake the Lord to, to worship these pagan gods? Uh, but I want to make the argument that his his choice of gods was directly related to his heart's ultimate loyalty to human power and strength. In reality, he was not just worshipping the gods of those nations, he was worshipping the power and the might of those nations. Uh, he was sick and tired, as we saw last week, tired of Judah being the small nation, the weakling uh, nation, uh, and he, he was ready for Judah to enter into the world stage. And, and it was this love affair with human power and human significance uh, that became even more pronounced once he decided to give his loyalty to Assyria. Uh, Notice the devotion, the devotion in his words to Tiglath-Pileser in verse 7, where he says, I am your servant and your son. Uh, You notice, by the way, the contrast. God had told David uh, that, that your children will be as a son to me. He's the son of God, uh, so to speak. Uh, And here Ahaz says to to the king of Assyria, I am your servant and your son. It's a heartfelt commitment rooted in his heart's deepest loyalty and trust uh, in the strength and power of men. Uh, You you could not at that time find a a mightier nation than Assyria. And and so Ahaz just gave himself wholeheartedly to this uh, nation, not only to gain their protection, but also to become a part of their empire. Judah officially then becomes, uh, as it were, were the the southwestern frontier of the Assyrian empire. It, It was an identity that Ahaz embraced. Now, we saw last week how foolish that was politically, and we saw last week the misery that that ultimately brought upon Judah. But now the focus is on the spiritual consequences that that decision had for Judah. Uh, With this new allegiance to Assyria comes a massive renovation in worship. Uh, Again, those who trust in the world will worship like the world. Uh, So, verse 10 It says, when King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, he saw the altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest a model of the altar and its pattern, exact in all its details. And Uriah the priest built the altar in accordance with all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it before the king arrived. Uh, So he begins this massive overhaul of the temple worship and modeled after the The pattern of the worship of the nations around. Uh, Now, just to make sure we're clear on our geography, uh, Ahaz is loyal to Assyria, the the great nation of Assyria. Uh, But the, the the altar he is looking at is in Damascus, which is in Syria. Not Assyria, but Syria, which is uh, actually his enemy nation. But we will presume this is probably sometime after Ahaz, or Assyria had already rescued him from Israel and Syria. And Ahaz uh, then goes to Damascus to meet the king of Assyria. Uh, so this is after Syria had been conquered. And there, as he's meeting with Tiglath-Pileser, the emperor of Assyria... Uh, he, he sees this uh, this altar. Uh, the point of all this is Ahaz is visiting what is a, a massive city center, uh, a sort of crossroads of civilization which assyria or which Syria certainly was, and he 's so impressed with what he sees there uh, because it speaks to him. It speaks to that love of his heart, significance on the world stage he 's so impressed that he immediately orders Uriah to get rid of the old bronze altar that was set up in the temple in Jerusalem and replace it with the one that he was seeing there in Damascus, uh, which in his mind was, was obviously much more beautiful or much more impressive. He sees it and he falls in love with that style of altar and says this is much better than the one we have back home. Again, those who trust in the world will worship like the world. Ahaz's desire is to be part of the world, to matter uh, in the eyes of the world, and it demonstrates in how he chooses to worship. He wants to worship like the world. Uh, It's an important phenomenon to pay attention to. When God's people fall in love with the world, uh, they will start worshiping like the world. And that's a tragedy because it's the worship of God that sets the people of God apart from the nations. Uh, by choosing to to abandon the worship of God, they abandoned their own identity. Uh, the worship of God was Judah's inheritance and Judah's greatest treasure. Uh, think of the words of David uh, that we sang from Psalm 27, verse 4. He says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, and that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Those are the words of, of David uh, as he was in, in the tabernacle. Uh, how that has changed In the eyes of Ahaz, what Ahaz is willing to forsake. And it may be very hard. I get that because of the distance of time and, and the distance of, of geography. It may be hard for us to appreciate the significance of what Ahaz did here. But think of the church, if I may speak that way, the church of, within Judah. Uh, to those who still shared that heart of David, that there's one thing I want in this world, and that's to inquire of the Lord in his temple and to worship him there. Uh, think of what this change meant for them as they saw this happening. Uh, The text is written in in a very specific way. There's a very key word in in verse 10, and that's the word pattern. Uh, The pattern. It says, He sent Uriah a model of the altar and its pattern exact in all its details. Now, if you know your Bible well, you've heard that word pattern before somewhere. It's the same word that's repeated over and over and over in Exodus when God was giving Moses the instructions for the tabernacle. Uh, for example, Exodus 25 verse 40, he says, See that you make everything after the pattern which is being shown you on the mountain. Uh, the worship of, the, uh, of God that was enshrined in the tabernacle uh, was, uh, was designed according to a specific pattern. Pattern, And it was a pattern revealed by God intended to show, to, to preach, as it were, visually, to preach theological and redemptive truths. Uh, the altar of incense, for example, or the, the menorah, the, the, the seven-branch uh, candlestick, or the cherubim and, and the pomegranates engraved in the walls and, and, and written in the curtains, Uh, The the garments of the priests, all these things were designed according to a pattern shown by God to Moses because every detail was meant to preach. The details, the pattern was, was meant to preach redemptive truths. Truths about who God is, truths about who we are truths about god 's plan of of salvation uh, th- this was a pattern and, and and these things enshrined in the temple was judah 's greatest and most precious treasure because there the gospel was visible was seen in the way the temple was built. Uh, God had uh, had uh, chosen Judah for himself, made a covenant with him, and enshrined the worship, the only true worship of him, there in the temple in Jerusalem. And it's there and there alone, in that temple, that anyone in the world could go and find the the. the Uh, The hope of all mankind, Uh, as all these pictures and symbols came together pointing to God's purposes, God's plans, uh, it was there enshrined in, in the temple. Uh, so, we need to understand that the temple worship was a visual picture of the Gospel uh, depicting the holiness of God and the way that man may approach him and even commune with him and be pleasing to him there are offerings of uh, of guilt uh, for sin there were offerings of thanksgiving there was an altar of incense referring to that that pure sweet communion with God that is enjoyed uh, when, when holiness has been been purchased. All these things, uh, one giant sermon written on stone and acacia wood and gold and bronze uh, and, and threads of, of linen and blue and purple and, and red, if, if you remember that that coming back again and again in, in Exodus. Uh, just to, to give an analogy, you think of sort of the way our flags are made. Uh, we have uh, our, our flags have meanings. Uh, the, the, the red and, and the white have, have uh, symbolic meaning. And if you go to someone who studies flags, they can tell you about why the flags are built that way, what they, what they symbolize. Well, so it was with the temple. Uh, it, every detail and every shape and every object had, had meaning. Uh, and it signified the most important thing of all, the way to peace and relationship With the one true God. Now, the central structure that stood out in front of the temple, if you were to walk to the temple, the first thing you would notice in front of the temple was this massive bronze altar, uh, 10 cubits by 10 cubits, uh, and there all the sacrifices were offered. Now, whenever you find bronze uh, in, in, uh, in Scripture, bronze symbolizes judgment. And this giant bronze altar standing in front of the temple then symbolized the judgment of God against our sins. Uh, the righteous judgment of God. And it's depicted in the death and the burning of the animals that were brought there. Uh, I didn't say it was a lovely scene, I only said it points to a lovely reality. Uh, And as Christians, of course, we recognize that altar, that terrifying giant altar, pointed to something. to the sacrifice of Christ. It sent the clear message to everyone who came to the temple. Nobody comes to the presence of God except by uh, by sacrifice, except the one whose sins have been paid for by blood. Uh, There's no peace and fellowship with God except when judgment has first taken place. Well, that altar, that's the altar that Ahaz decides to to remove from the front of the temple. And he moves it out of sight to the corner of, of the temple uh, to be repurposed for his own private uh, divination to, to inquire uh, by. Uh, now, again, I know that it may be hard to, for, for this to mean as much to us as it did to to them, to the church at that day, uh, because we live so, so far removed from it. Uh, but we have to recognize then... Uh, that that was how they worshiped God that was how they knew The gospel, by seeing that altar and by worshiping God through it. You think of uh, Psalm 103. We know the psalm very well. uh, uh, Another psalm of David where he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your transgressions, who heals all your diseases. Where did David come to understand that? about God. We came to understand that at these altars. Uh, it, It was there in bringing his sacrifices and seeing that sacrifice slaughtered and then immolated in fire that he was able to recognize that is for my sin. And in this way, God forgives me. God heals all my diseases. Uh, So even though it may be hard for us to see this through the eyes of the church of that day, hopefully we can at least understand then what a travesty, what a a tragedy this this temple renovation was. He was stripping the temple of the gospel that was there proclaimed. Uh, He was removing the heavenly pattern revealed by God, throwing it away and replacing it with the empty, godless, proud, and hopeless pattern of the religion of men. Now, I don't know about Ahaz from his perspective whether he understood all that or whether in his mind it was just an aesthetic change, you know, just sprucing up the temple to make it look a little bit more uh, 8th century BC modern, uh, to, to make it look a bit more like the rest of, of the world. Uh, so, he, he, he was borrowing Whether it was just aesthetic or whether he he understood more, he was borrowing from the religions of the world and enshrining them there in the temple, mixing the heavenly pattern with the earthly pattern. Now, you know, philosophers... I'm going to go a little deep here. Uh, Philosophers speak of of three ultimate transcendentals. Uh, they They are the ultimate absolutes of reality that correspond to the good the true, or the true, the good, and the beautiful. Uh, so you can rightly say uh, you know, there's nothing more important in life, and all of us should agree on this. Uh, the whole world should. There's nothing more important than knowing what is true, than loving what is beautiful, and valuing what is good. Uh, these are the, the three uh, transcendentals. In there, and, and these three absolute ideals and pursuits are interrelated. Uh, what you believe to be true always has consequences for what you believe to be beautiful and what you believe to be uh, good. Uh, this is why, for example, a postmodern culture like ours, uh, a culture that rejects absolute truth also rejects absolute good and evil, and also rejects uh, absolute beautiful and ugly. That's why a culture like this ap- uh, appreciates modern art with its infinite uh, interpretability. Uh, it, so, so the point is, aesthetics are never merely aesthetics. Uh, what you believe to be beautiful is always tied to what you believe to be true. Now take that to Ahaz as he's, as he's going up to Damascus. He sees this altar there uh, and he says, that's beautiful. I want that in Jerusalem. Well, that's tied to what he believes to be uh, true. Uh, aesthetics are never merely Aesthetics. Uh, likewise, also in, in worship, uh, preferences in the church today for, for what's called high worship, that's, that's highly ritualistic, highly formal, or, or low worship, very casual. Uh, uh, these, these, uh, these different preferences are rooted in convictions about what is true about God, about us. Uh, so when Ahaz sees this altar, uh, for him it was love at first sight. He sees it and he says, that's beautiful, I want it. Uh, it was not, not merely an aesthetic preference, it was a religious preference. A preference related to what he believed to be true. The same is true for this, this sea, the giant sea, it says, that, that Ahaz removed from the backs of the oxen. Uh, so, between the bronze, the giant bronze altar and the temple behind it, there was this giant bronze sea. You can read about it in, in 1, or 1 Kings 7. And this sea represented the cleansing that one experiences. After one has brought his sacrifices, one is cleansed there at the temple. You see a foreshadowing there of baptism. Uh, And and that sea rested on the backs of these twelve oxen, twelve of course representing the twelve tribes uh, of Israel, uh, three oxen pointing in in every direction, north, south, east, and, and west. And the symbolism of this was the 12 tribes of Israel that were not only given the the unique responsibility of of carrying the healing, cleansing waters of God, uh, but also that they were to carry that water to the four corners of the earth. Uh, as, they, as they were facing outwards. And it was a message that, that C communicated a message, a truth, that the, the whole world, uh, the cleansing that the world needed was to be found here in Jerusalem at the temple of the living God. And that it is our responsibility as Israel, the 12 tribes, to carry that healing waters, uh, water to the world. Well, Ahaz then, think about this aesthetic change then, Ahaz takes this giant sea off the backs of the oxen and places it instead upon a stone pedestal. What's the sermon that's being preached there by that change? What is this? The message of Israel being the unique bearers of the healing waters of the world is no longer acceptable in this global age. Uh, the notion that the living God can only be found in Israel, in Jerusalem, and not in the temples of Damascus or the temples of Nineveh uh, was now unacceptable to Ahaz. Uh, so the sea goes off the backs of the, the bronze oxen and it is placed on just a regular stone pedestal which says, you can still find clean uh, cleansing and healing here, but don't tell me you can't find it anywhere else. Uh, Don't tell me this is the only way to God. Uh, We live in a modern world, after all. You need to travel more like me, Ahaz, and go see the world. Uh, Get out of Jerusalem and see the world, and you would understand it too. Uh, Once again, those who love the world will worship like the world Uh, Now, he also removed these two bronze pillars that stood in front of the house. Uh, Their names were Boaz and Jachin. They they named the the pillars. Uh, And and the names mean uh, he is our strength, that's Boaz, and he will establish, that's Jachin. Uh, And they symbolize the strength and protection of God, uh, which, as we already saw last time, Ahaz had traded in for the strength and protection of Assyria. So not surprisingly, he has these pillars also removed. Now there there are some details uh, here that we we don't actually know what they're referring to. uh, Like this covered way for the Sabbath. Uh, It's not clear what that even was. Uh, And and, and it's worth noticing though, that whatever these, these changes were, they were made, it says, for the sake of the king of Assyria. Here's who Ahaz is trying to please, the king of Assyria. Now, uh, some of the commentaries, as they try to interpret this, they stumble over this because there's actually no evidence that the king of Assyria ever required uh, the, the nations that he conquered or, or that were part of his empire. That he ever required them to, uh, to, to practice its religion. Uh, Assyria w- did not care about remodeling the worship of these different nations. As long as those nations paid their tribute, it didn't matter to Assyria. And so some of the commentators say, is this, is this possible that Ahaz would have done this to please uh, the king of Assyria? But really, that's exactly the point, isn't it? Uh, The king of Assyria didn't make Ahaz make these changes. Uh, Ahaz wanted to. Nobody made him do it. It's because he wanted to do it. It was his genuine, heartfelt love for Assyria, uh, for his savior, That made him want to implement these changes. It was his desire to be an Assyrian of Assyrians. uh, The most loyal and committed vassal of Assyria. Uh, Indeed as he says in verse 7. The very son of the king of Assyria. He wanted to fit in. So much then for the renovation of the worship. Brothers and sisters what shall we make of this? Well, first we want to recognize that, that Ahaz betrayed the Lord God, and by doing this, he did great damage to his own people. Uh, his legacy is not just political, it's also religious. He traded in the heavenly pattern, the gospel in seed form. He traded it in for the religions of the world. Now even if for Ahaz it was nothing but an aesthetic preference, uh, it was an aesthetic preference that was rooted in a different view of the truth. Uh, By doing this, Ahaz threw away more than just tradition. Uh, By removing the altar, he threw away the gospel itself, the way of salvation that had been revealed by God. Uh, Also, by getting rid of the twelve oxen, uh, he threw away Israel and Judah's unique identity as the bearers of the gospel who were to carry it out to the world. Uh, By discarding the bronze pillars, he removed from Judah the strength and the protection and the blessing of God, which very soon showed itself when the armies of Assyria came and ravaged the land of Judah. So Ahaz robbed Judah Of its identity. That's the first thing we want to recognize by this renovation. Uh, Secondly, we want to recognize that when men abandon the truth of God, whether it's liturgically or doctrinally, uh, they do not thereby change that truth, they simply rob themselves of it. Uh, thank God that the, the eternal truths sim- symbolized and embodied there in that temple, uh, which came to fulfillment uh, in Christ, they remain true in spite of Ahaz. But Ahaz and Judah with him lost their share in it. Thirdly, as Christians today, in the age of the church, as as we who hope in Christ and wait for His return... We ought to guard ourselves against the faithlessness of Ahaz that so easily occurs also in ourselves. Again, those who hope in the world will worship like the world. Uh, think of the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Worship matters. Worship matters. Aesthetics matter. Uh, liturgy matters. And now there, there are obviously differences between the, the liturgy of the temple of that day and the liturgy of the church today. Uh, ceremonies that then revealed the gospel in seed form ha- have been replaced today by a liturgy that centers on the reality that has now come in, in Christ. So there are differences, but there are also similarities. It is the same gospel in which we find our hope. The same song that David could sing, Bless the Lord, O my soul, who forgives all your iniquities, is the song that we sing today as well. Uh, Even though we sing uh, that song knowing much more than David did. As a Reformed church, uh, we hold to what is called the, the regulative principle, which teaches in essence that the way that we worship God is taught to us by God, and we will ourselves neither add to it nor take away from it. Now, th- that principle does sometimes get uh, over-applied, misapplied, things like uh, there ought not to be microphones in worship services because there's no Bible and, and, you know, Bible chapter and verse, or there's, there should be no instruments because the New Testament doesn't, uh, all that stuff, uh, but we, the point of that principle is we recognize that, that the principles uh, for the way that we worship are taught to us by Scripture, and so we are to be deliberate in shaping our liturgy, shaping the way that we We worship after the pattern revealed to us by God. And we are to never allow our worship to conform to the patterns of this world. Uh, The Westminster Confession puts it this way. It says, "...the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by Himself, and so limited by His own revealed will, that He may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor much less the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations, or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. We worship, the way we worship is taught to us by the Word of God. Now, this is not some sort of uh, straitjacket that's meant to just force us into some external uh, conformity. It's the call of God to know Him as He is and to worship Him Accordingly, uh, to know the gospel as it is truly revealed in Jesus Christ, to know what it means, uh, and, and so through Christ, to worship God rightly, knowing that Christ is the very temple of God, uh, the true and abiding temple. So we worship God through Christ in spirit and in truth. Uh, and in that regard, our commitment as a Reformed church to worshiping God In accordance with his word, it's not something that limits our freedom as a church, but actually something that increases our freedom because it frees us from the pressures of cultural conformity. That Ahaz experienced. It frees us from that that cruel master of of cultural relevance. uh, Which causes so many churches to innovate over and over and over. Constantly reinventing the way to worship God. uh, As a way of staying on on that cutting edge. Uh, We say rather for the sake of our own freedom. We say let us worship God in accordance with his word. Let Let him teach us how he is. To be worshiped. Let us take our cue from the Word of God. So, brothers and sisters, we should learn a sober lesson from Ahaz, this this innovator uh, of worship in the age of the temple. Uh, There are too many churches in our day where the form of worship is increasingly becoming indistinguishable from the forms of worship you find in our culture. Uh, For example, there there are churches uh, who appeal to an academic base, uh, and, and so the sermons are turned more into intellectual, conversations, questions uh, that are being asked and pursued according to the number one rule of of postmodern academia that the truth ought never to actually be found. There are churches that worship, that preach that way. Uh, There are churches whose worship services as well are, are virtually indistinguishable from rock concerts. Uh, And I'm not talking here about having a band. Uh, As such, there's no biblical argument against having multiple instruments. Uh, In fact, some of the Psalms encourage it. But the principle, the biblical principle uh, that the people of God should all be worshiping, should all be singing. This is worship, not entertainment. That principle is taught to us by the word of God and ought to be honored and upheld within the church. And it takes wisdom to know uh, what that looks like. Uh, The the style of music, even, uh, ought not to conform to the pattern of this world, but ought to conform to the pattern of Scripture. Uh, The music style is not a matter of indifference. Again, aesthetics matter, and they are rooted in a view of the truth. Uh, This is true, of course, of the content of our music, uh, which also must be based on the pattern of the Word of God. This is why as a Reformed church, we prioritize the singing of the Psalms, uh, as the church has always done throughout history, and as Scripture uh, commands us to do, sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Again, it's not that we don't sing hymns. Uh, the, the psalms themselves call us to do so. Sing a new song to the Lord, for He has done mighty works. But, but sing a new song does not mean stop singing the old songs. Uh, stop singing the psalms. Uh, no, on the contrary, we make the psalms the very backbone Of our worship, the core of our songbook, and then the pattern, again there's that pattern, by which we would write new songs, by which we write our hymns. Uh, When the Psalms are written on our hearts, then we are able to write good Hymns. Uh, Martin Luther, for example, had the Psalms on his heart when he wrote the great hymn, A Mighty Fortress, based on Psalm 46. Or or Stuart Townend, who wrote In Christ Alone, uh, had his heart and mind soaked in the Psalms. Uh, The language of Christ, for example, being our hope, our strength, our song, our cornerstone, our solid ground. All of these images are drawn from the Psalms. When you know the Psalms and when you're soaked in the Psalms, then you write good hymns. Uh, So with all of our liturgy, when the pattern of the gospel and the pattern of the word of God is etched on our hearts, then we become not innovators when it comes to worship, nor imitators of the world, but rather worshipers in spirit and in truth. Uh, One final point on which I'll close. Uh, When we look at Ahaz's renovations of the temple, it's very clear that one of the big stumbling blocks for Ahaz uh, was the exclusivity. Of temple worship. Uh, the, the worship of the temple proclaimed loud and clear that there is one true God and there is only one way to him. Uh, he is worshiped in Jerusalem alone, and it's the tribe of, uh, of Israel that carry that responsibility uh, to, to, to preach that gospel to the world. Uh, that's what Ahaz, uh, as this world traveler, could not stomach. As one who had seen the world, he could not handle the ex- Exclusivity of of the worship of the temple. And that's a serious stumbling block in Christianity today. And there are many churches who also stumble over it. Jesus was very clear. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That message is intolerable in our postmodern age. Just as it was unacceptable in the age of the Assyrian Empire and in the age of the pluralist Roman Empire in the days of the early church. Uh, It is the the, the central uh, doctrine of our postmodern culture uh, that there is never to be only one way to God. And there are many, many churches who have capitulated to that pressure. Uh, Interfaith dialogue is the mantra of our day. Uh, And even in those churches that that might still have confessions or subscribe to those uh, statements of faith, uh, even there, acknowledging that Jesus is the only way to God... even there, the central message of that gospel might well be oftentimes shoved into the corner like that bronze altar was not removed, just just shoved over into the corner. Uh, so, so that we end up talking about things instead like realizing your potential, discovering relationship with God, these sorts of uh, broad uh, terms that appeal to all religions. We might still... Say that yes, Jesus is the only way, but if you never talk about him as the only way, then that altar has been shoved off into the corner. Uh, nor, of course, do you have to look far to find churches that have just removed other elements of the gospel, things that are offensive. In the eyes of this culture. Whatever those things may be. Whether it's the the scriptures teaching on homosexuality. Or or scriptures teaching on the unique roles of men and and women. God's design. uh, Or or the scriptures teaching on biblical origins. Things that if they're not cut off. Like the, like the, the... Um, the basins, the legs of the basins that Ahaz, it says, cut off. If they're not cut off, uh, they're otherwise pushed over to the side where you don't have to see them. No one has to look at them. Well, brothers and sisters, the warning Paul gives us here in Romans 12 could not be more relevant to us. Do not be conformed to this world, uh, to the worship of God in this world, uh, to the image of this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Uh, Those who tamper with the truth, like Ahaz, do not change the truth. They simply rob themselves of it. Uh, So come, brothers and sisters, to the one abiding Temple of God to Jesus Christ. Uh, Come to Him not to renovate Him or to remodel Him, but to worship Him. Uh, Recognize in Christ the heavenly pattern, the gospel of salvation by which sinful men can be brought into the presence of the holy God, by which their sins are atoned for by the blood of Christ, by which they are then washed, just like that, that big basin represented, by which they are washed in the healing water of Christ as He cleanses us and renews us for holy service, and by which they are then invited to come forward into the very presence of God and there to worship Him. Amen.